Good morning, everyone. Good morning. If you'd open up your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians the 5th chapter, we're going to notice one verse there, but it is a verse that we will call upon and make reference to all morning long. We want to get it before us, though, right here at the outset in Ephesians chapter 5. Let's get ready to focus our hearts and our minds upon the living Word of God. Seth certainly had his work cut out for him this morning trying to announce all 973 of our members that are traveling and in other places today. And while we certainly are missing all of those folks that are gone, I'm very appreciative personally of everybody who didn't go out of town for spring break. Thank you so much for being here and a special welcome to our guests. We do have a lot of guests today. Got some folks that are here for the very first time. Got others uh, that have been here before, but we're glad to have you again. Good to see some faces that I haven't seen in a long time. Just so glad that we're all able to be here on this first day of the week, the Lord's Day, to worship God in spirit and in truth. And that is what we're here today to do, to offer praise and honor and glory to God by worshiping according to His pattern. And it is important for me to say that, and it is important for you to kind of get that locked into your mind right now, Because we're about to study about some things, about a subject that I believe a lot of people have just forgotten. That it is God that we are trying to please here. That it is His pattern and His way and His will that must be observed in all things. With that thought kind of right at the forefront, let's read together in Ephesians chapter 5. I'm looking here in verse 19. In Ephesians 5 and verse 19, the Bible says, Ephesians 5 verse 19 that we are to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. In 1859, something happened about 90 miles north of here in the little town of Midway, Kentucky. Something happened in Midway that would absolutely rock the religious world. In Midway, Kentucky, the Church of Christ introduced a melodeon into their assembly. And that also is a picture of the actual melodeon that was introduced in that church. It's currently on display at Midway College. That church introduced the melodeon, thus becoming the first Church of Christ to incorporate instrumental music into the worship of God. Now, what may seem like some to be a very minor, insignificant change actually created a great division. A division that ultimately culminated in the United States government recognizing in the census of 1906 that there were now two different, two distinct religious bodies. There were the disciples of Christ churches, and there were now the churches of Christ. Both groups claimed to baptize in water for the remission of sins. Both groups claimed that the Bible was the only authority for all matters of faith and practice. But the major difference, the dividing line between the disciples of Christ, known today as the Christian church, and the churches of Christ, was the central issue of the use of instrumental music in congregational worship. It was a terrible split. But it seemed, at least to some people, that it would finally settle that age-old question about instrumental music in worship. That folks who wanted instruments in the worship of God, they could go to be a part of the disciples of Christ churches. And those who were opposed, those who wanted no part of instrumental music and worship, they could go and they could be a part of churches of Christ. Unfortunately, of course, 
Nothing was really ever settled. Not having instrumental music in worship became really the identifying mark of Churches of Christ. And there was always a minority of folks, even within Churches of Christ, who were very uncomfortable with that stigma. They didn't understand about all of that. In fact, some people were even embarrassed by that thought. I mean, after all, who wants to be seen as different? Who wants to be seen as weird? What religious group in the world doesn't use instruments of music in their worship? Churches of Christ just kind of sticking out like a big sore thumb from everybody else. Not using a piano. Not using a melodeon. Not using any other mechanical instrument of music. And so the issue, the issue never really went away. There were then and there are now. There have always been some who have pressed and who have pined for instrumental music in worship. In fact, in the last 10 or 15 years or so, we have seen more churches of Christ adopt instrumental music into their assemblies than at any other time in history that I am aware of. Churches of Christ in Texas, Tennessee, Indiana, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Missouri, Michigan, Ohio, just to name a few, have brought this issue right back to the forefront here in the 21st century. What do you and I say about all of that? What is your position on this issue that has historically been a very divisive matter? Uh, More importantly than what you think or what I think, what is the Bible's position on instrumental music in the worship of the church? What is God's pattern for the worship of the New Testament church. Well, I believe the passage that we began with here in Ephesians 5 verse 19 answers that question definitively. That God's pattern for worship involves singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? That's pretty direct stuff. That seems pretty simple. In fact, in light of what Ephesians 5.19 says, I'll just go ahead and say it. I believe that these congregations and others like them, I believe that they are in error. And so it seems to me we're right back to Midway, Kentucky. Except of it being 1859, it's 2017. What then do we say about this old error that never completely seems to go away? What do we say about this old error rearing its head once again in a new day and a new time? How do we respond to the various arguments that are offered and leveled, all the kinds of offers that are made, not just by churches of Christ, but really just by churches of every kind today, who would attempt to justify the practice of instrumental music in worship? What do we say about all of that? Well, this morning I want to spend a little bit of time exploring some of those arguments and some of those justifications. This morning I want to identify and share with you five of the most common justifications that people will offer in support of instrumental music in worship. And I do believe, I do believe that the folks who offer these ideas, I believe they are very sincere. I believe they really believe these things. I believe these are very genuine statements that people make, but in the final analysis, I believe we're going to find that they all fall short. And so I want to examine five common mistakes that folks throw out in favor of instrumental music and worship 
and how we might be able to help. What are some things that we might say? What are some counter-arguments that we might be able to make to help folks to think more clearly and more biblically about this issue that just continues to be an issue? First and foremost, it seems that lots of people think that, well, this issue of instrumental music, this is merely just a matter of tradition. That you non-instrumental folks, you folks that are opposed to instruments in worship, that's just your tradition. That's that's Church of Christ tradition. That's just the way that you all have always done things. In fact, I'm hearing that line more and more from preachers in churches of Christ. I read recently this quotation from a preacher who said, he said, we view the a cappella practice, and a cappella just means vocal singing without instrumental accompaniment, what we've been doing this morning, We view the a cappella practice of the Church of Christ as a tradition. We don't find anything wrong with instrumental worship. We simply choose to respect the tradition of our forefathers. In other words, what that guy is saying is, he's saying, the reason that we do things without instrumental music is because that's just the way that we've always done it. Now let me tell you folks, there's not anything lamer than appealing to this is the way we've always done it. That means nothing. That proves nothing. And if this is how we've always done things, if that's the best that we got, then we might as well just go ahead and wheel a piano in and any other kind of mechanical instrument of music because this is how we've always done it. That is no standard for authority whatsoever. Human tradition is not. And it cannot be our criteria for establishing what God approves of in worship. Let's just be clear when we talk about tradition, and this is something we want to talk with when folks bring up the tradition argument. There are two kinds of tradition. First of all, there are human traditions. Human ways of doing things. Those things are not binding upon us. Those are just the most expedient ways to get various things done. For example... It is our tradition here at Lakeside that we assemble for worship at 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. Now, there is no mandate in Scripture that says we must meet at 11 a.m. on Sunday morning and it has to be done that way. No, we can meet together, have a service at 6 o'clock in the morning. We can have a service at 2.30 in the afternoon on Sunday. I'll be at the 2.30 service. I'm not getting up for the 6 o'clock service. There is no word in Scripture as to the precise time when we are to assemble on Sunday. Or think about our midweek service. There's not a verse in the Bible that says we must meet on Wednesday night for Bible study. We can meet together on Tuesday for Bible study. We can get together on Friday morning for Bible study. We can have Bible study or have a midweek service. We can have that service every single day of the week if we so chose. Those are matters of liberty that are given to us under the broad commands, the broad general principles of the New Testament. They are generally authorized by Scripture. Thus, we have some liberty to to make some decisions. In fact, in those cases, we have to make some decisions about how we can best accomplish those commands. And yes, if we do those things long enough, over time, they become a tradition. Let me ask you this, though. Can we just substitute our traditions for things that God has explicitly given instructions on what He wants and how He wants done? 
What about when it comes to the various activities, the things that we're doing in these worship assemblies? Do we have the liberty to just go kind of plugging in our traditions just willy-nilly however we want? What if somebody said, what if somebody came up with the idea today, hey, let's have a big giant idol of Jesus. Yeah, let's build a big golden statue of Jesus. And when we come together to worship, we're all going to fall down and we're going to worship the big idol of Jesus. What about that? Would that be okay? What if somebody said, hey, let's have a big drunken party for God. That's the way that they did worship in pagan cultures in ancient times. We'll just get together, have a big revelrous, big, giant, drunken party for the Lord in His name. Is that a tradition that we could start incorporating into our worship? Absolutely not. In fact, pretty quickly, somebody would say, whoa, 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 whoa there, Josh, hold on. We don't read about any of that kind of stuff, idols and drunken. We don't read about that kind of stuff going on in the New Testament. We don't ever see the apostles or Jesus authorizing those kinds of things in the worship of God. And you know what? That's exactly right. Because while there are human traditions that provide no standard for authority, there are, on the other hand, apostolic traditions. The traditions that were handed down by the apostles, where those apostles commanded and mandated the very will of God, and those traditions... They must, emphasis must, be followed. Look in 2 Thessalonians 2. In 2 Thessalonians 2, this is the passage that you want to mark in your Bible whenever somebody starts in on all this tradition stuff. That's just your tradition, or this is the tradition. Well, look in 2 Thessalonians 2. Paul says some stuff about tradition. In 2 Thessalonians 2, I'm reading in verse 15. Paul says there, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by our letter. The mistake that so many people make today is confusing apostolic tradition for human tradition. To assume that just every tradition is flexible. Anything that's tradition, it can be bended, it can be molded, it can be changed to suit what we want. If we don't like it, we don't have to do it that way, we can do it another way. While that might be true when we're talking about human traditions, what time we're going to meet together on Sunday, the order of the services, how many songs we're going to sing in services, we've got some flexibility in those areas. But what 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 15 says is that there are also apostolic traditions which must not be tampered with. And whenever we open up our Bibles to Ephesians 5.19, where Paul says, Sing and make melody to the Lord with your heart, what we're looking at there is we're looking at an apostolic tradition. We're looking at an apostolic tradition that cannot be altered. It cannot be amended. It cannot be added to. And that would include, that would include even adding to that mechanical instruments of music. Let's get it straight. Ephesians 5.19. It is not a matter of that's just your human tradition. No. Ephesians 5.19 is a matter of truth. Truth is what sets the standard, not this is the way we've always done it. Because if this is the way we've always done it, if that turns out to be wrong, then I should hope we would want to be shown what's right, wouldn't we? If I'm doing what's wrong, I, I, I want to be set straight about that. I want to be able to change that if I'm doing the wrong thing. But if this is the way we've always done it, if that's in keeping with the apostolic traditions, if it is scriptural, if it is right, then we ought to rejoice that we're doing that. 
I rejoice that we are following apostolic tradition this very day. We rejoice in righteousness and we will never move from that. Somebody says, well, I'll tell you what, talking about whether you're right or whether you're wrong, I can show you where you're wrong, Josh. I can show you exactly how wrong you are. Don't you know, number two, don't you know that David, David used instruments in worship in the Old Testament, there you go, the Old Testament, instruments of music, right back there, David did it, all kinds of people did it in the Old Testament. You know what? That is exactly right. That is absolutely true. There's no sense in us trying to deny that. Look over in the Old Testament. Let's grab a couple passages. Look in Psalm 33, please. In Psalm chapter 33, here in this wonderful book of worship, we read in Psalm chapter 33, look in verse 2. In Psalm 33 and verse 2, give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. That is an instrument of music. Make melody to Him with the harp, the harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. And that's just one example, but there are actually all kinds of examples of that very same kind of language used all throughout the Psalms. And I don't think it does us any good at all to try to argue against that. It's there. There's no doubt about that. In fact, you can take that a step further. Look in Second Chronicles with me. In Second Chronicles chapter 29, as we read about the restoration of temple worship under King Hezekiah, I want you to notice here, and this is something maybe we just sometimes kind of fail to acknowledge, that not only were instruments allowed, instruments under the old law were actually mandated. Look in Second Chronicles 29, verse 25. Hezekiah stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals and harps and lyres according to the commandment of David and of Gad, the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet. Notice this. For the commandment was from the Lord through His prophets. There you go. Hold your place here in Chronicles. I'm going to come back in just a second. But right there, there you go. Instruments commanded in the Old Testament. What are you going to say about that now, Mr. Smarty Pants? Well, I think there's a lot of things we can say about that. Maybe the first thing that I would say about all of that is that that is taken from the old law. And it is referred to as the old law or the old covenant or the Old Testament for a reason. And that's because something new took its place. A new testament. A new law. A change in covenants has taken place. Look with me in the book of Hebrews, please. In the book of Hebrews, this point is made repeatedly. Hold your place in Chronicles. I am going to come back to that in a second. In Hebrews chapter 7, the Hebrew writer talks about Jesus as our high priest. And he talks about how Jesus could not be our high priest under the law of Moses. And so he says in verse 12, in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 12, he says, for there is a change in the priesthood. When there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. That change from the old law to something different. Maybe just flip over a page now. Look in Hebrews 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, look in verse 9. Talking here about Jesus once again. He added, this is quoting here of of, of the Lord's words, Behold, I have come to do your will. Then notice this last part of verse 9. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Done away with the first, which would be that old law, to establish the second, what we refer to as the new law. We don't live under the old law. We don't live under the law of Moses. We do not worship according to that old law. 
That's why, for example, that's why we're here today, Sunday, instead of yesterday, the Sabbath day. That's why you'll notice that no one is wearing priestly robes this morning. That's why you'll notice that no sheep or goats were slaughtered in the duration of this service. As soon as somebody starts pointing to things from the Old Testament to justify their religious practices, I believe that that is just doomed to fail. Because pretty quickly, I'm going to start asking some pretty hard questions. I'm going to start asking questions about, well, what about circumcision according to the Old Covenant? Where are you at on that? Where are you at on Gentiles being out and only Jews being in? How good are you with that? How much of the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy are you okay with? How about all those animal sacrifices? Are you ready to bring all of that back into fashion? How about what the Old Testament says about tattoos? How tattoos were prohibited under the old law? What about gentlemen? What about trimming the corners of your beard? That was prohibited under the old law. Just how much of the old law do we really want today? The truth of the matter is, as soon as you start asking those kinds of questions to folks, I'll tell you what I found. I found that a lot of people have just never really thought about that. They've never really considered that through. So many people today want to think that we're somehow still under the old law, that the Ten Commandments are the end-all, be-all of God's spoken revelation, and that Sunday is, in fact, the Christian Sabbath. There seems to be much confusion today about the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, which is why... That's why David is offered so readily and so freely as validation for instruments of worship. That doesn't work, does it? In fact, as you turn back to 2 Chronicles, I want you to notice that passage again in 2 Chronicles 29. Notice that, that last statement one more time. 2 Chronicles 29 verse 25, about those instruments that were instituted under Old Testament worship. Look at it again there. For this commandment, was from the Lord through His prophets. I have a question here. If God is capable of clearly specifying that He wanted instrumental music in the Old Testament, wouldn't it stand to reason that God is perfectly capable of expressing Himself understandably today as to what He wants pertaining to music in worship? I believe the answer to that is a resounding yes. Of course God is able to do that today. And I believe that Ephesians 5.19 clearly expresses His will. Furthermore, doesn't it just speak volumes to you? I know it does to me. That neither Ephesians 5.19 nor any other verse in the New Testament gives a single command to play an instrument. God was able to do that in the Old Testament. Why did He never do that in the New Testament? If under the old law, God told people to play, and people then did what God said, shouldn't we under the New Testament just sing whenever God says sing? Somebody says, Josh, all right, you're talking about this Old Testament, New Testament stuff. You're saying you're real big on the New Testament. I'll give you a New Testament passage. Talking about a New Testament passage. Haven't you ever read the book of Revelation before? Because in the book of Revelation, it says in there that there will be harps in heaven. What about that? And I will confess to you that yes, I have read the book of Revelation. And I am familiar with that reference to harps in heaven. Let's find Revelation. Look in Revelation chapter 5, please. In Revelation chapter 5, there are, there are actually three mentions of harps in heaven. And chapter 5 is the first of those three. I'm just going to, we'll just notice just this one. 
And of course, the line of reasoning goes is that if harps are okay in heaven, well, who's to say that harps and other instruments would not be okay here today? If you can worship God with an instrument in heaven, why can't you worship God with an instrument here in the church today? And so, Revelation chapter 5, verse 8 is offered. Look at Revelation 5, verse 8. There the revelation says that when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders, they fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, you read that, and that seems to be a pretty good argument, doesn't it? You know, who's going to say that you can, if you, you know, you can do it in heaven, but uh, you can't do it here on earth? You can do all these wonderful things of, of rejoicing and showing God your love and adoration in heaven and doing that with the heart, but, but you can't do that here on earth in the church. Can we stop and just think about that for a second? Are we really ready to say that anything and everything that goes on in heaven is okay in the church here and now? Just stay right there in that verse. Look at Revelation 5, 8 verse again. Revelation 5 verse 8 talks about the idea of burning incense. Can we burn incense in our worship today? Is that something we ought to be doing? Hey, they're doing it in heaven. If it's good enough for heaven, why can't we be doing it here? Somebody may be quick to say, now, now come on Josh, hold on, wait a minute there. That incense right there, that's not talking about literal incense. If you look at verse 8, it actually tells us that those golden bowls of incense, they represent something. They represent the prayers of the saints. That's not talking about literal incense. And you know what? That's exactly right. Now answer me this. If those are not literal bowls of incense, what makes us think that that's a literal harp? Maybe the harp represents something. Like say, for example, the praise and the adoration of the saints. I think that's important to point out. In fact, it's important for us to point out as we think about Revelation as a whole. Revelation is not an overly literal book full of all these literal images. Revelation, on the other hand, is a book that is full of figures and visions and word pictures and signs. In fact, we get that right in the introduction. Look at the very beginning of Revelation. Revelation 1 verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending His angel to His servant John, who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that He saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of... Notice this. The words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Revelation is not full of literal doctrinal statements. Instead, it is filled with lots and lots of exciting and very vivid imagery and symbols and prophetic language. All of those things are designed to describe things, verse 1, that would soon take place. So for us to use this book to try and find a pattern for our worship today, it really seems like to me that we're kind of knocking on the wrong door. The worship that's described in the book of Revelation, what we're reading about is we're reading about things that... We just don't even have access to. You read in Revelation about things like winged creatures and mighty angels. Even beheaded Christians are involved in the worship in Revelation. Do we need to try and get some of those things incorporated into our worship too? Think for just a minute just about, about heaven. Heaven's not a physical place, is it? 
Now in the Bible, heaven is described as a spiritual place. It is the dwelling place of God. God is a spirit being. Isn't that why Jesus says that He talks about heaven? He says in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 30 that there will be no giving in marriage in heaven. What about that? There's no marriage in heaven. Does that mean there should be no marriage here on this earth? Ready to say that? Hey, if it's good enough for heaven, it ought to be the same thing down here. Come on, we know that doesn't work. Look in 2 Peter chapter 3. In 2 Peter chapter 3, what is going to happen to this earth? What's going to happen to the physical realm, this world, all the physical things that exist upon planet earth? Well, 2 Peter chapter 3 tells us conclusively what's going to happen to the physical realm. In 2 Peter chapter 3, look in verse 10. Verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed, laid bare. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. What's going to happen to this world and all the stuff in it? It's going to be burned up. So let me ask, what's going to happen to musical instruments? What's going to happen to all of those mechanical instruments of music that we love so dearly? Well, they're going to be burned up too. All your Stradivariuses, all your Steinway grand pianos, that guitar that Grandpa played that you love to hear him play so much, your high school clarinet that's still somewhere in the back of your closet, that mandolin that my wife got me for Christmas a few years ago that I've never learned how to play, all of that, it's all going to be burned up and gone. Now, does anyone really believe that musical instruments are somehow going to get a pass when Jesus returns? That everything else in the physical world, it's all going to be destroyed, it's going to be burned, it's going to be dissolved, but our instruments, they will be spared from God's fire and God's wrath. We'll be able to take them with us and we can play them in heaven. Somebody's thinking, Josh, no. That's not going to be... Because heaven is a spiritual place. We're not going to have physical bodies in heaven. We won't have physical instruments of music in heaven. We're not going to have those wood and string and brass instruments in heaven. And once again, that's exactly right. And that is precisely the reason that we cannot use the book of Revelation as a source of authority for playing physical instruments of music in our worship today. Ephesians 5.19, on the other hand, different story. Ephesians 5.19 gives us a very literal command. A literal command that Christians, that the church can and must carry out today as we literally and physically sing our praises to God and as we address one another. Which would then lead someone surely to make this next observation. You know, Josh, keep keep bringing up Ephesians 5.19. Real big on Ephesians 5.19 there. I'll tell you something about Ephesians 5.19. I bet you don't even know this. Didn't you know that in the original Greek language, the New Testament when it was originally written, it was written in the Greek, that Ephesians 5.19, it's got a word right there in the verse that you all need to be paying more attention to. The Greek word in Ephesians 5.19, the word sallow, that word sallow gives authority for instrumental worship. In fact, if you'll go back to Ephesians 5.19, let's just grab that verse again. I'll show you where it's at. You may even want to make a note of it in your Bible as you encounter this argument in Ephesians 5.19, there Paul says, he says, we are to address one another in psalms, 
hymns, spiritual songs, singing, and making melody. Underscore that. Making melody to the Lord with your heart. That expression, making melody, that is derived from the Greek word, sallow. And that word, sallow, it can mean to pluck or to play as on a stringed instrument. It can mean that, depending on the context, it can mean to pluck or to play as on a stringed instrument. And so, aha, there you go. There it is. There it is. Pluck or play on a stringed instrument right there. Bible authority for musical instruments in worship. Now, I'll tell you, when that argument gets played, it usually causes some head scratching from folks. Because most people, I know that I sure am not, Most people are not packing around a big old Greek lexicon everywhere that they go. And so most people are not just plopping it open and looking up Greek words and what they mean just, you know, at the snap of a finger. So as a result, that argument, what it does is it sounds, it sounds very, very sophisticated, doesn't it? Sounds very academic. It sounds very, very intellectual. I mean, come on, how in the world are you going to be able to argue against that? Well, I do want to argue against that. I want to submit to you that I believe it is a huge mistake to decide that you can somehow prove something in the Greek that's not in the English. I'm very bothered. I'll just say this first of all. I'm very bothered at the suggestion that you have to be some kind of a Greek scholar in order to understand the Bible. That really bugs me. If you looked at Ephesians 5.19 just as a regular person, maybe you just were picking up a Bible and you were reading that verse for the very first time. Would you possibly come away thinking that there was something in that verse about instrumental music? I believe the answer is no. You'd never come away thinking that. Just reading that verse just at face value. But oh, if you pull out a Greek lexicon, if you look at the Greek, folks seem to think that there's just a whole different set of instructions in the Bible, but it's buried there beneath the English text. I want to ask this question. If those guys who translated the Bible from Greek into English, and we're talking about, you know, the very best, most learned scholars in the whole world. If those guys translated the word sallow as sing and make melody, why'd they do that if it really just means sing and play? Every translation that I know of, and I have consulted dozens, Every, tra- every reputable translation I know of, King James, New King James, New American Standard, NIV, ESV, Revised Standard, all of them, they all translate it as sing and make melody. In fact, I'm not even aware of one of those like paraphrase Bibles, one of those really modern versions of the Bible that has all these you know, doctrinal biases bled into the text. I don't even know of a single one of those who translates that as sing and play an instrument. In fact, most of our Bible translations, I hope you understand this, most of our Bible translations are done by denominationalists. Guys who worship in churches where there is instrumental music. Yet still, they are honest enough with the text of Scripture to translate sallow as sing and make melody. Truth of the matter is, you don't have to know Greek in order to understand what Ephesians 5.19 is saying, or what any other verse in the Bible is saying. In fact, you can understand Ephesians 5.19 just by staying right here in the text. Look at the beginning of the verse again. We are to speak to one another 
Or as the ESV renders it, we are to address one another. Let me ask you, what does an instrument of music speak? What does it say? How can a mechanical instrument address one another? The answer is it can't. An instrument can't say anything. If you look at the whole of Ephesians 5.19, the kind of music being talked about there is clear. It is the kind where we are using our voices, our God-given voices, to speak and to address one another in song. I don't need to know Greek in order to figure out what Ephesians 5.19 is saying. I can look at that verse, you can look at that verse, we can read that verse and we can understand exactly what God wants. Furthermore, I'll tell you this, if you are looking for an instrument... And there's, there's, there's maybe something to be said about that plucking that's going on there with that word sallow. If you're looking for the instrument to pluck or to play, verse 19 actually gives you the instrument. We are to sing and to make melody with our hearts. The instrument in verse 19 is the heart. Pluck your heart. Play your heart. That is the God-given instrument that we all are to be playing in our worship. Now let me just throw this one more thing out as a bonus. I didn't have room to put it up on the screen. If Ephesians 5.19, if it means sing and play, then wouldn't that mean that everybody would have to have an instrument in order to carry out the command of this verse? You know, this is a command that's it's not just for a select few, is it? This is a command for all Christians. This is a collective command. All of us are to come together to sing and to make melody. If that word means play then doesn't that mean as everybody's coming in the door, we need to be handing out instruments to everybody so that we can all obey the commands of God? You see, what proves too much ends up proving nothing at all. I believe it is a huge mistake to try and twist the Greek to make it mean something that doesn't actually even fit into the context of Scripture. All of that then leads to this fifth and final justification that people often make for using instrumental music in worship. And that is, some people at the end of the day, they just say, you know what, it just doesn't matter to me. It it just doesn't matter to me. And I believe that that is precisely where most people are on this issue. It doesn't matter to me. Sing or play and sing, what's the difference? It's just not that big of a deal to me. One fellow did a survey of all of the various churches in America. And when he finally came to the churches of Christ, he ended up making the following observation. He said, It is a peculiar kind of mind that is convinced that God is interested in whether His worshipers sing with or without instrumental accompaniment. In other words, that guy is saying, Y'all are just weird. Why do you make a big deal out of that? Why do you got to get... They're so worked up about this. I don't get it. For me, as it is for so many people, it just doesn't, it just doesn't matter. And I think, when you hear somebody say that about this subject, I think the way you should respond is by saying, yep, you are a hundred percent right. What else can you say? If someone says, it doesn't matter to me, well, you know you better than I know you, and you know what matters to you and what doesn't matter to you. But then after we affirm that they are right in saying that, we then want to say, 
that it ought to matter. It ought to matter to you. Because worshiping God is serious, serious business. I can't think of very many things that are more important than glorifying and worshiping the Creator of the universe. This is not some kind of casual, do-as-you-please, whatever-you-like activity that God's just going to have to accept and He's going to have to take whatever we happen to throw in His direction. No! This is about coming to Him on His terms. This is about trying to please Him, if you're still in Ephesians chapter 5, just bump back up to verse 10. Because there Paul says in Ephesians 5 verse 10 that we are to try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That's what it's all about. That's what life is all about. It doesn't matter what pleases us. This is about what pleases God. And the truth of the matter is, human beings have long had a very, very careless attitude toward worship. There has long been this attitude that says, you know, what's it really matter? You know, worship is worship. Why you got to make a big deal out of all those fine print details? Ask Cain in Genesis chapter 4 if it matters how you worship. Ask Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10 if those fine details matter in your worship. Ask the Israelites in Malachi chapter 1 if how you approach worship matters or not. Ask the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 if it matters whether or not you do things right in worship. Over and over again in Scripture, example after example, what we see is that God does sweat the details. And whenever His worshipers do not show that same interest, they do not display that same kind of careful attitude toward worship, over and over again we find that God is displeased. God is upset. God does not accept that worship. And that scares me. The thought that I could be offering worship unto God week after week after week and He doesn't even accept it. Doesn't even regard it. And while that is certainly a motivating thought, that fearful thought of God rejecting our worship, that ought to motivate us to do the right thing. I believe we ought to be motivated even more so by the recognition that our God is so great. He is so awesome that He deserves better than that. He deserves better than worshipers who don't care enough to actually investigate and see what He wants. It is a grave, grave mistake to think that we'll just worship however we want and God will just have to accept it. No, He won't. God says no to worship that is centered in man's desires and man's ideas. Yes, I believe that even includes the addition of instrumental music in the worship of the church. Now let me close this morning by saying that I realize these are not the only five things that people often say in defense of instrumental music in worship. Ever since those events that took place in Midway, Kentucky 158 years ago, there have been many, many, many justifications that have been offered for the use of instruments of worship. But I believe that even when all of those offers, all of those justifications, when they're all laid out there, when all of the arguments have been made, when the dust has settled and the smoke has cleared, Ephesians 5.19 still says the same thing. Ephesians 5.19 still says same. No less, 
and certainly no more. Let's be content with that. Actually, let me take that a step further. Let's be delighted in that. Let's be delighted to simply be people who do what God says and never ever waver from that. Now in just a moment, you and I are going to have an opportunity to practice what I just preached. We're going to have an opportunity to sing. And we are singing what we sometimes affectionately refer to as a song of encouragement. We are going to address one another We are going to encourage each other to think very hard about our walk with the Lord and whether or not we are living for Jesus. I believe the invitation song is Live for Jesus. If you have never confessed your faith in Jesus Christ as God's Son, if you have never been buried with Him in baptism for the remission of your sins, we are singing to encourage you to do just that this very hour. If you are a Christian, but you're not serving the Lord very well, maybe sin has crept back into your life and it needs to be repented of, And brother or sister, we are singing this song to encourage you to return to the Lord and be faithful unto Him. Pay careful, careful attention to the words that we're about to sing in this song. Because it is the words that matter the very most. And I take delight in the fact that no piano, no organ, no melodeon, or any other instrument is going to drown out what we are about to sing to one another. We can help you this morning to start serving the Lord or to start serving the Lord in a better way than we sing this song to your encouragement. If you just make your way down front right now while we stand and yes, while we sing.